Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace. We're in a series called Flourishing, and one of the most outlandish claims that the Bible makes regarding flourishing is that we can actually flourish through suffering. I want you to look with me right now at this passage from the book of 2 Corinthians in your Bible. If you have a Bible or a device that you read Scripture from, just find that quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 3 through 10. We're going to read it and then spend some minutes unpacking it. This is all about Paul's hardships, but I want you to particularly notice how he flourished through it all. He said, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report. And then he goes on. He says, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many people rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. It was Thursday morning when a high-rise condo tower in Surfside, Florida collapsed, and as of this morning, five are confirmed dead, and yet there are scores, some reports say many as 156, that are still unaccounted for. Can you imagine the tsunami of grief that those families are going through? You know, pain has been called the universal language. And I don't know what may be causing pain in your life today, but I know this, the struggles are very real. There are conflicts on the outside and fears within. And it may be centered in your family. It may be related to your workplace. It might be something in your own body related to your physical health. It might be a temptation that you're going through that's causing grief and pain and frustration in your life. It might be your finances that are really, really struggling and you're feeling the anxiety because of that, or it may just be this massive battle of discouragement that you're going through. But here's the question, whatever the suffering is that we have, how do we respond to all these troubles, to all the suffering that comes our way? That's the big question. If we're truly gonna flourish through suffering, we've got to know how. We've got to know how to respond. And so as I got ready for this series, I started pondering this because just to be candid, this is the message I dreaded. 
I was excited on the one hand because I think there's so much truth here we need to grasp, but it's the one I kind of dreaded because, I mean, is it really possible to flourish through suffering? I'm convinced it is. And so as I thought about it, I came up with five T words <laughs> that I believe kind of summarize the way people usually try to deal with suffering in our world today. Now, I believe that every one of these has some biblical warrant to it, but the first four less than the last one. I believe the last one, number five, is the one that Paul is primarily talking about in today's passage. So let's unpack them. Let's look at them together. If you're taking notes, here we go. The first approach is to try to tolerate suffering, to tolerate it. What I mean by that is we cop this rather stoical attitude and we conclude, hey, suffering is just the way life is in this world. We can't do anything about it. So quit complaining, buck up, and just tolerate it. There's a popular bumper sticker that reads, keep calm and carry on. And that phrase, keep calm and carry on, originated back in the UK when the British government in 1939 came up with that slogan, keep calm and carry on. Why? Because they had heard word and had great evidence that the Nazi war machine was preparing to engage in mass bombing of the UK. And so people were anxious. People were freaking out. What are we going to do? Some people were in a deep panic about what this might mean for them, their family, and their country. And so the government said, look, keep calm and carry on. Keep a calm persistence in the face of this Nazi challenge. And many historians believe that had a huge impact on the British psyche all around. Keep calm and carry on. And that has now become a popular slogan in a lot of places. It's on coffee mugs and bumper stickers and t-shirts and posters. And of course, there are all kinds of spoofs that, spoofs that play off of that statement. Some of my favorites are keep calm. No one knows what they're doing anyway, right? And then there's one that says, keep calm and rock on, right? And then there's a one that says, keep calm and aim for the head. But probably my favorite one is, freak out and throw things. That's how you ought to respond when you're under pressure. Now, as I say, I think there is some biblical justification for this kind of stoic, toleration of suffering. In the passage we just read, Paul said in verse 4 that we, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And the first way he said is in great endurance. Paul also wrote in Romans 12, verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. So there's this attitude in scripture. I believe it's there. That says, look, we need to keep tolerating and enduring these sufferings we're going through because it's just a part of the warp and woof of life on this planet. But sadly, some people never get beyond just this sort of stoic toleration of suffering mentality. I think there's a better way to go. A second approach would be to terminate suffering, to terminate it. 
I believe this is probably the knee-jerk reaction for most professing Christians. I mean, come on, what do you do when you hit a painful time? It's just natural to say, God, would you please take this away, right? Terminate it. Stop this trial of suffering I'm going through. And by the way, we receive an enormous number of prayer requests here at the church, and that's good. I hope they keep coming because we are a people of prayer. We believe in the power and the efficacy of prayer. And I find that through the years, my sort of prayer list tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger. We believe in prayer. God has invited us all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, to call on him, and he will answer us. And I have no statistical data to back this up. This is just my perception. But as I've looked at the enormous list, probably thousands that have come to the church, prayer requests through the years, I'd say the number one request is, God, would, would you pray that God would terminate this? I'm going through this, that, the other thing. Please pray that God would do a miracle. Please ask God to fix this, to change this, to get me out of this situation. It's not pleasant. It's painful. Ask God to take it away. That's the vast majority of the prayer requests that we have received. And I don't, I'm not surprised, are you? I mean, that's the way I pray. When I hit suffering, hard times, I go, God, I don't like this. Take it away as soon as possible. Now, is that approach legitimate? Is it biblical? Does God do miracles? Praise God. Yes, he does. Now, we wish he would do more than we see him do. But make no mistake, God does break in with miracles, and we should be incredibly grateful when he does. Paul writes in this same book, just a little bit later in chapter 12, he says, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. So Paul says, look, of course miracles happen. But here's what I'm intrigued by. If you study all of the prayers that Paul either prayed or asked for people to pray for him, and there's a lot of them in his letters, here's what I'm intrigued by. He does occasionally pray a terminated prayer. God, would you stop this? Would you take this away? But Paul, and he is a person that I consider to be an example of tremendous flourishing, if you examine carefully his prayers, most of them are not that God would just stop it, terminate it, get him out of this mess. Most of them have to do with God working through suffering to bring about a greater good. And I think that ought to be instructive for us. So, is it wrong to pray for a miracle? I hope you're hearing me. Absolutely not. Is it wrong to pray that God would take it away? No. It's just that God usually has a much deeper agenda going than our personal comfort. I hope I didn't just wreck your whole day right there. But it's true, and I need to say it again. Usually, God has a much deeper agenda going than just our personal comfort. He's always more 
invested in our holiness than our happiness. Sorry if that wrecks your day, but it's just biblically true. But praying for a termination of suffering is a very valid approach. Third approach is that we try to transcend suffering. Now, please listen carefully to what I mean by this. We try to minimize or look beyond our suffering and remind ourselves that there's a better life coming. Praise be to God. So, since I have heaven to look forward to, I'm going to let my focus on that glorious prospect of heaven help me transcend the misery and suffering that I'm going through now. This is a very common approach, especially among poor and oppressed people groups around the world. And it is a valid approach that is rooted in biblical hope. I Googled the words of a song. I couldn't remember all the words, so I wanted to make sure I got them right, and I, I printed it out to a song we used to sing in the little church that I grew up. It's, it's called The Sweet By and By. Any of you ever heard this song? Yeah, a number of you have heard this song. Johnny Cash, believe it or not, wrote this. He was acquainted with some grief in his life, and he wrote these lyrics. There's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar, for the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. And then the chorus, in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. I love that song growing up. I still love it. Oh, don't clap for that. Please, please don't clap for that. That's a pity clap right there. I know what that is. And then he goes on. We shall sing on that beautiful shore the melodious songs of the blessed, and our spirits shall sorrow no more, not a sigh for the blessing of rest. So what is that song all about? That song is about we've got this great, sweet by-and-by place coming. We're all going to gather, and all our sorrows will be gone. It's a land that's fairer than day. And by the way, almost all, of the great spirituals, the spiritual songs that came from enslaved peoples and oppressed peoples had that exact same theme. The idea was we can transcend to some degree our suffering now by focusing on the hope we have for a better life in the future. Now let me digress just a moment on that or go down a little side road. And this is something I'm incredibly passionate about, so hope you can have ears to hear. Karl Marx, the author of Das Kapital and numerous other works, one of the key thinkers and philosophers behind the Marxist communist sort of philosophy, he called himself the enemy of Christianity. He harshly, if you read any of his writings, he harshly critiqued religion. And he called it famously the opium, not the opiate, as many people have said, the opium of the people. He claimed religion just kind of soothes people's troubles, it calms their fears, and it lets them be content with the miserable present life they have instead of fighting for a better life here and now. And so the thinking goes, look, don't fight for a better life now in this world because you're going to get a better life one day when you die. But in the meantime, 
Don't be a revolutionary. Keep your head down. Keep your mouth shut. Just get as comfortable as you can with the status quo. And so in Karl Marx's view, that's all that the belief in the afterlife was good for. It kind of helped people transcend their suffering now and reconcile them to their miserable existence because of their hope in a better life to come. So what would you say to that? Is there a kernel of truth in that? Well, as I've already acknowledged, yes, those of us who have hope in a better life to come, a hope in heaven, of course it helps us transcend our sufferings now. In fact, Paul even made a statement like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. That's quite a statement. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's chapter 13 of 1 Peter 1. So is there hope for the future, for the Christian in the future? Of course. Do we look forward to the joys of heaven? Absolutely. But here's the difference. Biblical Christianity, Mark's got it wrong. Biblical Christianity does not teach, hey, just accept this messed up world as it is and don't work to change it because there's a better world to come. No, 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 that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is, hey, because there is a blessed hope for a better world to come and because God loves this present world and all the people in it that he created, you pray and work with all your might for this world to be a better place now. That's the message of Christianity when it comes to the practical impact of our future hope. And if any of you doubt this, I challenge you to do your homework. If you do your homework carefully, you'll find that it was the very Christians who believed most passionately in a better world to come who actually made their, their world now a better place. I dare you. I dare you to do your homework and check that out virtually Every major humanitarian breakthrough in the 19th century, just to use one example, from the abolishing of the transatlantic slave trade to the implementation of compassionate labor laws for children who were being worked to death 12 hours a day in sweat factories in the Industrial Revolution as it was breaking out, to the fight for the rights of all people groups, you name it, virtually every one of those causes was led and championed by people of faith who believed tenaciously in a better world to come, heaven. But that did not become opium to them, as Marx suggested. That did not lull them to sleep and make them so heavenly-minded they were no earthly good. On the contrary, because they believe so passionately in the world to come, they worked doubly hard to make the world now a better place and to get uh, as many people ready for it as they could and to relieve human suffering every time they had a chance. Now, why am I camping out here for a moment? There's a reason. Because I believe we have lost some of that in the 21st century. So I'm challenging you today, Christians, if, see, the, the, the belief that has pervaded over the last few decades is, look, the world is a ship going down. 
Just try to get people to pray a quick prayer so they'll go to heaven. Don't do anything to help anybody. In any, don't worry about That's like rearranging chairs on the Titanic because the ship is going down just to try to get people to pray a prayer. That's all we need to be doing. And that's what the popular eschatology has led people to do. So let me just put it to you bluntly. If your eschatology leads you to believe that relieving human suffering and working for a better world now is pointless, I humbly suggest you get a new eschatology. Sound biblical theology will never, ever lead Christians to disengage from being transformation agents in our world right now, ever, ever. If you're... Theology, your eschatology is leading you to that conclusion. I humbly suggest you get a new one. It's probably not biblically sound. We should pray and work. Jesus taught us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. As it, that's not just eschatological hope one day. That's something he wants us to be involved in actively right now, unceasingly until he returns. All right, I'm off my soapbox now. Let me get back to the sermon. But one of the valid biblical approaches is to ask God to help us transcend our suffering because of the coming hope. Quickly, a fourth approach is to triumph in suffering. This approach also has some biblical basis. Romans 5.3, we also rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says. James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops, and then he lists these things that it will develop. It'll make you mature. Your suffering, your trials will help you become mature. So you can now triumph in them literally, because you know, based on your past experience, when you've gone through things in the past, you know it literally is bringing about this positive result. And there's an old classic illustration that us preachers love. I've used it probably four or five times through the years at Grace. Let me use it again. I love it. A little girl, schoolgirl, was watching a butterfly emerge from a cocoon. And he seemed to be struggling so much. That butterfly was so slow, and she was getting impatient. And it was struggling, it seemed, to get out. The butterfly, literally to her, seemed to be in pain. So she took a sharp little pen knife and began to kind of cut the cocoon open slightly right where the butterfly was emerging so she could help the butterfly get out without struggle. And although it did emerge more easily, it had these rather undeveloped wings and it fluttered to the floor, unable to fly, and a couple of days later, died. It was not flourishing as it had been designed because the painful struggle of breaking out of the cocoon is a process designed to strengthen the wings. And without the painful struggle, it doesn't have the strength to flourish and fly. Now, if we gave the time, dozens of you could stand right now and give testimony to that truth in your own life, couldn't you? You could. 
You could stand up. I know some of your stories. I know my own life stories. You could stand up and say, yeah, God allowed me to go through this dark night of the soul, this time of suffering, this pain, this challenge, this heart attack, this health problem, this relational difficulty, this downsizing at my work. But oh, you say it was horrible. I'd never want to go through it again. But boy, I emerged stronger. I emerged a different person. God changed my whole life through that. I'm a better person today, you would testify, because of having gone through that. I have more compassion, more understanding, more patience with people, more mercy, more love, and I appreciate the simple joys of daily life more because I went through the crucible of suffering. And so now... You can literally, along with the authors of the Bible, you can literally triumph in your suffering. You can rejoice in it because you know from experience how God uses it. Trust me, that is a valid biblical perspective on suffering. So we've looked at four of them, but let me give you my final T word today. And I believe this one describes better than any of them what Paul is really talking about in 2 Corinthians 6. Be transformed by suffering. Don't just tolerate it. Don't just ask God to terminate it. Don't just fix your eyes on heaven and try to transcend it. Don't just triumph in it and rejoice in it now. But listen, in cooperation with God, with your eyes firmly fixed on Christ, ask God to use this to transform you. Now, if your Bible's still open there, would you look at a verse earlier, uh, before what we read today? It's the first verse of chapter six. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter six. Verse one is a strange little verse. Have you ever noticed it? As God's fellow workers, he writes... We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? How could you possibly receive God's grace in vain? Let me tell you what I think it means. If you've received God's grace just to get you out of hell and into heaven, but you really don't want to change into the person he designed you to be, if you really don't want to be sanctified and truly become a holy, set-apart person who is nobly following his purposes in your life, if that's you, you've received God's grace in vain. That's, I believe, what Paul would mean by that. God gives us daily grace so we can flourish through daily Challenges. Now, you may wonder or ask, Pastor Rex, what's the difference between what this passage teaches and what you might call classic prosperity doctrine that is incredibly popular today? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. I never get over you guys. You always ask the best questions I have ever heard. So here's the answer to that. You need to know this if you're going to be a better disciple because there's a lot of flaky theology around. Classic prosperity doctrine teaches that when a Christian is suffering, anytime a Christian is suffering, it means God is being defeated 
in that situation. Or, or at the very least, it means that God's glory is being diminished because of that suffering. That's what it teaches. Now, if you follow the logical implications of that, wow, it, I don't have time to go there right now, but it, would, it gets pretty bizarre and it leads to some really unfortunate conclusions. But here's what the Bible teaches. When a Christian suffers, God is not being defeated. In fact, God may, get this, when a Christian suffers, God is not only not being defeated, but in that very moment, he may be doing some of his best work. Amen. Now that's biblical theology. In the very moment that we're going through some of our hardest trials, God may be doing, doing some, hey, don't even look beyond the cross to get that. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than the cross from a human perspective, but was God being defeated? Boy, it looked like it. Oh, it was just a triumph of all triumphs. God always has a deeper agenda. So please, let's get beyond the shallow thinking that any time a Christian suffers, it means God is being defeated. That's ridiculous. God always has something more profound going on. In fact, if you just turn a page or two to the left, Paul makes this incredible statement in chapter one, verses eight and nine. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Can you imagine somebody as great as the Apostle Paul feeling that way? You and I know we felt that way at times, haven't you? I have. So I despaired even of life. I've been there. Most of you have been there. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But notice the reason Paul gives. But this happened. Notice this. Why did God allow this? Why did this happen? That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. God had a purpose, even through that intense struggle. We learn to rely on God. You see, the flourishing Christian life is one that is lived moment by moment in a relationship of reliance on God for his grace. Amen. And we find that though God may not change our circumstances, he gives us grace to meet the needs of our soul, and he helps us truly flourish in spite of our suffering. Our soul is literally being transformed as we learn to rely on God and not ourselves. So, did Paul flourish through his suffering? Well, here's a part of his testimony from chapter 4. We're afflicted in every way, he wrote, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal body. That sounds like flourishing to me. We're not knocked down, but hey, we're still flourishing, Paul says. We're not crushed by these trials. 
Paul says we were face to face with death, but through that struggle, we found that the Lord was more than sufficient. So let me ask you again, did Paul flourish through suffering? Sure sounds like it to me. In the passage from today, he said, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. I'd say that's flourishing. And he could do that because he did not receive God's grace in vain. In chapter 12, when Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, he said he prayed three times. He pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, I wanted God to terminate it. That's one of those few examples where Paul did pray for a termination of a challenge. But God said, no, my grace is sufficient. I'm gonna help you flourish even through this challenge. You're gonna learn how to draw on my strength. But you say, Pastor Rex, I'm in a situation right now where I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to turn or what to do. That's certainly the way Jeremiah felt when he stumbled almost zombie-like through the windswept rubble of the city he loved, Jerusalem had been destroyed. And Jeremiah's heart broke and he wept over the devastation. But in the midst of that suffering, he said, because of the Lord's great mercies, we are not consumed. It's because of his love. For his compassions never fail, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So my question as I close is, can you say that in the midst of your pain? You see, suffering is this fresh opportunity to receive God's grace and flourish through it. But in order to do that, we've got to ask God to transform us and make us into the men and women, the people he wants us to be. Father, we wanna be flourishers. We want to increasingly, progressively experience the full dimensions of your favor and grace in this life and the next. And we wanna help as many people as we can do the same, Lord. Help us to be people of depth, people of biblical understanding so that we will not easily be duped or opt for flakiness or people who are looking for shallow answers. Help us to be people of depth where with the Apostle Paul, we can flourish even in the midst of all the challenges that we're going through. Oh, we thank you because of your grace, we can. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.